Section 41, Scaling the Office Infrastructure and Platform. I don't know how to read this without getting concerned. Bill G. replying to an Office 96 status report, April 1995. In shipping at scale, it is not enough to agree on what needs to be done. There also needs to be an agreement on how it gets done. While the big apps were successful in their own right, one reviews sold incredibly well, had high customer satisfaction, and were made by teams that were exemplars of the Mike Maples value system, they evolved with different engineering systems. Differing in detail, they all accomplished the same, shipping high quality for the era, or at least higher quality than everyone else, while striving for a ready-to-ship product every single day of the process. To developers and testers, the micro details of how this worked across teams for committing changes, check-in tests, unit testing, localization, and more were all highly evolved. Each step in the process was tuned to the unique needs of each product's engineering organization, or perhaps tribe is a better description. Minor differences would be amplified both at scale and across teams. A common example was how much time in the schedule was reserved or buffered for the unknown. Excel, with its record of getting closer and closer to on-time RTM, was, depending on your perspective, either extremely hardcore or excessively conservative, but managing the day-to-day -day progression through the schedule was critical and very much a key part of the culture. It is a statement about Microsoft culture that the better Excel got at hitting projected ship dates and shipping award-winning products, the more the discussion across Microsoft, outside the Excel team, centered around how conservative the team was getting. To Excel, they were just being hardcore. This is best symbolized by the leather biker jackets developers earned as a shift kit, adorned with a recalc or die logo. The times were different. The idea that getting better at daily engineering and hitting scheduled milestones was somehow a sign of being less aggressive or grandiose in plans gets to the heart of the divergence of Microsoft cultures across the company. The apps teams not only wrote the zero defects memo, but internalized a cultural attribute of promise and deliver. Much of the rest of Microsoft seemed to have succumbed to the idea that such a process or philosophy was somehow less hardcore or even wimpy. There was a strong belief among the overpromise side of the house that building a platform was simply more difficult than building applications. Never mind that the applications were also platforms, but I digress. And that there was a real difference in impact if a platform cut features the way apps did in order to ship. I can say this because many times when it came to collaborating across the company, I was on the receiving end of comments along the lines of, yes, but that's only because it's just an app. In my weaker moments, I would say the quiet parts aloud, such as, yes, but you'll never ship. Apps, meaning Office, was the more fragile growth engine of the company and bigger opportunity for products. Office depended on customers choosing to buy Office over an existing product they already owned or competitor, and that decision benefited from a new version of Office drawing interest to new capabilities and over time would come to depend on much more profitable corporate deals, as we will learn in the next chapter. Windows, on the other hand, was going out on almost every new PC at a much lower price than Office, but much higher attached to the PC. Whether an updated version of Windows is on the PC or not, PC sales were going up primarily due to businesses buying first PCs for many employees. And in a bit of a twist, those customers often preferred the current or even previous version of Windows anyway. There was certainly a pop that came from a new Windows release, especially when timed with updated PCs for back to school or holiday, but no one was confused over the revenue drivers. 
These differences in the business models led directly to the variation and tensions in development processes and also to the differences in how each business evolved and innovated well into the future. We were all products of our environment. Putting these together, there were three tensions at play in building Office 96. Enlisting support across executives for an overall plan, the normal process of each formerly business unit, then product unit, doing this on their own no longer sufficed. Developing a plan with buy-in from the dev managers and test managers for how Office 96 was to be built, the tooling, day-to-day dev process, and the overall testing and verification through to localization. Deciding what to build that represented a suite while continuing to recognize that to the outside world, customers and the press, the category battles might not be yesterday's news, even if the Microsoft strategy was all office. I wish there was a lot of story to tell about how this played out, but in reality, decisions were made in a bottom-up or distributed manner. The rest was going to be an execution. The office product unit was formed while the product plans were created in parallel. Thus, much of Office 96 would be characterized by OPU and the apps in a state of tension over planning and execution. Ultimately, this made for a very bumpy Office 96 release filled with many new execution challenges, but it also built the foundation for an execution machinery that would become unprecedented and largely responsible for what ultimately became the largest and most secure business at Microsoft. The Office 96 plan had two main pillars. The app product units embarked on deep category-defining features, continuing to make inroads against legacy MS-DOS competitors and to win against Windows competitors. At the outset, the suite included Word, Excel, and PowerPoint within the DAD organization and access in the tools division. These products underwent significant architectural work consistent with a full 24-month schedule. The initial plan was to continue to ship mail and schedule plus, though this would change completely as we will see. Second, the office product unit built a set of features shared across the apps, and then they integrated those features into one or more of the apps. This is a key tenet about creating shared infrastructure, leaving the other apps to do integration work on their own. In addition, OPU would by nature of code and also influence make sure that the suite was designed for consistency and integration across the apps. The OPU features ranged from a lot of heavy lifting, but straightforward, to some of the most sophisticated refitting of features envisioned by the apps. In contemporary terms, OPU was both an infrastructure team and a platform team. In terms of infrastructure, OPU drove new shared engineering quality processes led by John Devon and Grant George and created shared components essentially representing a platform upon which to build office applications, providing the code or APIs for many common application paradigms across user interface, text handling, graphics, drawing, and more. As a successful product engineering team scales and a product line grows, there is an inevitable desire to gain efficiencies of engineering scale and an ability to expand the product line efficiently. This all sounds perfectly reasonable until you realize doing any of this runs strongly counter to the very forces that got the teams to success in the first place. Changing processes sounds risky when it took so much work to get to the current state. Sharing code always sounds much more difficult than not sharing code. Sharing code always means either replacing something that already exists in a winning product with new code from someone else or adding code that does not completely and fully understand the unique needs 
of the winning product or its customers. As is almost always the case, the shared code is viewed as bloated, overly complex, or simply does more than needed. Despite the recent success in using shared open source code, the more established a product is, the less likely it is to see code from the outside as a preferred path. In 1996, it was always about performance, memory management, or simply complexity. The technical buzzsaw would evolve to include security, manageability, even privacy and safety. The reasons might change, but the goal of avoiding shared code remained. Shared code is a way of ceding your autonomy to another group. Developers have traditionally maintained an attitude of NIH, not invented here, as shorthand for the distrust of OPC, other people's code. As a note, startups love shared code as a way of getting a lot done in short order. With success, however, comes a change in those views. The benefits to sharing are enormous, and that is what leads teams to take on these challenges. If a product team can create shared infrastructure and platform assets, then more engineers can focus on category-specific work while also making it easy to add entirely new products to the business with substantially less effort. Office had Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and now Access, but the world of productivity software was vast, and it made no sense not to try our hand at information management, drawing, note-taking, project management, desktop publishing, or a host of new categories. OPU would be a key part of how to scale both out and over in productivity, and Office 96 would be our collective growing pains. To best illustrate this, let's look at some of the specifics of what OPU did. The diversity, breadth, and frankly, aggressiveness is due to John Devon and his engineering leadership that pushed to do a lot in the first release of shared code out of the gate in early 1994, a few months before I joined the team. The body of code was packaged in a Windows DLL, or Dynamic Linked Library, a Windows mechanism for packaging executable code to be shared, and also the source of endless frustration in the world known as DLL hell. But I digress, though this will return to a topic soon enough. The DLL file was named MSO97.dll, though sometimes called MISO in conversation for MS Office. Along with MISO, there were a few other files as well as a test harness that could exercise many of the capabilities called Lime, like the color. Lime would grow over time and eventually prove out just how much of a platform we were building. The online version has a slide from 1994 listing the key Office product unit technologies. MISO contained code designed to be shared across applications, bringing with that engineering efficiency, experience consistency, higher level improvements, and even better performance, and more features, because generally, that is what happened with a dedicated effort. Features were the currency of our apps teams. Features defined contributions. The more visible and customer-facing, generally speaking, the better. Therefore, it was important for OPU to have its own features, not just be a dumping ground for the grunge work that big teams traditionally farmed out or deprioritized. An example of this was setup. The code that copied bits from floppies to hard drives. Almost always, getting this done was a last-minute sprint and shunted to new hires or even contractors. Apps teams were more than happy to have OPU take this over, without giving up any resources, of course. Creating OPU was not going to go that way. So the portfolio consisted of a fair share or more of grunge, cool features, and even an app of its own called The Binder. This type of portfolio was critical to the successful creation of an office product unit team and culture, 
giving it an identity beyond simply the plumbing team, so to speak. Over time and several releases, MISO would be viewed by the entire organization not as a tax or an effort bolted on the side, but as an asset, and more importantly, a starting point or a platform. The journey of building the Office platform would start with the tension and difficulty described herein and end with new features defaulting to shared efforts, new apps spinning up quickly with MISO, and the organization finding a balance between platform and infrastructure and category-specific innovation. Every product or even organization at scale finds itself at some point of the swinging pendulum of centralized versus distributed efforts. Often this is viewed through the lens of what is good for the broader business, but at each end of the pendulum is an on-the-ground view of a challenge. These views are as predictable as the broader swings. When moving from a distributed to centralized or effort or resources, the formerly distributed accountability will find every reason to doubt the capabilities and necessity and ultimate viability of a centralized effort. Over time, the same people and organization come to rely heavily on the shared team and actively push work to the centralized efforts. This dynamic characterized most everything in OPU. In the work I do with companies today, the topic of scaling, sharing, and building new products efficiently over time is one of the most popular lessons I have the opportunity to share. My own experience was a journey of a career scaling, sharing, and collaborating that occupied the next 15 years of work. We spent a good deal of time in 2000 describing some of this for a Harvard Business School case, which for many years was used to teach a combination of customer-informed product development and shifting an organization to sharing like we did with OPU. The online version has a link to this case study, Microsoft Office 2000 by McCormick and Herman. At the sophisticated end of the platform features was a share drawing layer, codenamed Escher. The Microsoft art collection, which had a significant job to do to fill the reception areas and lobbies with something, mostly featured Northwest contemporary artists, but had one original MC Escher hanging in the Building 17 atrium, where Office was located. The acquisition of that was championed by Art Committee member and first Office Vice President, Chris Peters. Sometimes even apps had cute code names. Escher was a big effort spanning all the apps, and especially PowerPoint, where much of the lower-level graphics code would be implemented. The integration of Escher into Word was done by the new OPU team, staffed with developers from across apps, Having engineers that had worked in each of the app's code bases was critical to building shared code to work across those products. Again, these were massive products and code bases of Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. And this was a key decision John Devon made in staffing the teams. Like all the new shared features, there was a constant debate across apps and OPU as to the value of the feature for each team. OPU was in a constant state of selling on the value of shared code and the idea that sharing enabled teams to get more than they might need, basically for free. Except in practice, nothing was free, as each app inherited compatibility and complexity that it decided it didn't need. Drawing was a great example of that, but it was not even the most controversial. Every app in Office had some support for drawing, but none were particularly deep and all seemed to serve very category-specific use cases. Word was able to embed drawings as rectangles or regions within a document, much like a photo, which is how most people thought about adding illustrations to business documents, if they could draw. Business memos and other documents having basic drawing tools that could float on top of a document, much like an acetate layer, also enhanced documents and were recently added to Word 
but still relatively limited. Even more exciting was the ability to broadly use fancy text that became known as word art, which was a new but constrained, as with drawings, to be embedded in regions and not used arbitrarily throughout a document. The complexity of creating feature-rich and deeply integrating drawing tools was daunting in Word. To mitigate this, the lead engineer, Peter Engrove, email Peter N, volunteered to lead the integration of Escher into Word from within the new OPU. A key tool for managing the shared features was that OPU would lead the integration into one of the main apps, thereby learning firsthand the complexity and also minimizing the work to the app. Excel had elaborate tools for charting, candlestick, donut, 2.5, dimensional, etc., but some minimal tools for doing callouts and basic graphics or drawing on top of sheets. There was a great deal of resistance to features that were deemed not something Excel users requested, or even features that were viewed as less than professional or businesslike. Whether that resistance was genuine or simply a sort of technical buzzsaw didn't really matter. The Escher team constantly received inbound doubt over any features, simply from the perspective of it not being interesting to Excel users. At the other end of the need spectrum was PowerPoint, which was basically a big drawing program. Why would a drawing program want to use shared code as that was their entire domain? As though to emphasize the maximum complexity of sharing code across the apps, PowerPoint's main concern was that Escher wasn't enough for them competitively, simply because they were spending time putting drawing in Word and Excel, neither of which appreciated drawing as much. See how that worked? That's the middle that OPU found itself in as a platform team for already successful products. Escher would go through many rounds of adding features for compatibility with what was there and removing features because of schedule constraints, along with challenging debates over features versus integration. The end result, however, was a tsunami of graphics features across the product. Every product picked up capabilities previously found only in high-end and rarely owned professional tools including a broad array of shapes, modern graphics file formats, including transparency, photo handling, shaded, animated GIFs, like the best-viewed in Internet Explorer logo, logo on all the HTML files created, and even an integrated and vastly richer variation of word art, the curvy, glowing bubble text so popular with grade school children and small business signs. It was also featured on the TV show Baywatch as the opening credits. The online version has the Baywatch logo created with Escher. A huge part of Escher was that much of the shared code work was also done from within the PowerPoint team itself. PowerPoint was located in Silicon Valley, and this was the first time we'd embarked on SIM shipping deeply integrated code across a plane flight. The online version includes a screenshot from a 1997 product review showing all of the capabilities of Escher in one slide. While the debate over Escher was intense, the debate over the core or primary user interaction, meaning the user interface, in apps was even more so. The core user interaction in Office took place through toolbars, which were primarily a source of app innovation. So much so that the image on the box and most screenshots in the press were of the toolbars. In an effort to build a suite, one sold with a value proposition of consistency and muscle memory, it was only natural that we tried to share toolbars, do them right, do them once, as our competitor Lotus claimed to do. In modern context, this just seems trivial. But at the time, this was a key innovation. With the different teams on different schedules, but with a shared DNA and understanding of potential solutions, it was no surprise that there was some common evolution along with opportunities to be a little bit better or different depending on the perspective of each app. 
toolbars proved legendary in this regard. One of the first battles we found ourselves in was over the design of toolbars. Word and Excel each had designed and tested their own toolbar implementation and arrived at different heights, 15 versus 16 pixels. It's so trivial to mention, but research was done separately by Word and Excel and surprisingly showed Excel and Word users had different preferences. Oh, obviously due to test design or some other factor, since it's ludicrous to think that this differed by app. This might not have mattered, except that the main marketing demonstration of Office showed Excel embedded charts within Word. Clicking on the chart loaded the Excel toolbars and caused a one pixel shift in the whole document. As if that weren't enough, there were equally divergent views over the design of the tooltip, the tiny little text that appeared when the mouse was hovered over a button and it explained what an icon might be. This invention had those that believed the tooltip should be white and those who fought for yellow, not to mention debates over the delay, stickiness, amount of text, whether the keyboard shortcut should be there, and whether there was a choice to disable them. Even the simplest feature, no matter how new and clever, were impossibly difficult to coordinate. Ever the diplomat, Andrew Quatnitz, email Andrew K, spent the better part of the product cycle ironing out, negotiating, and pleading consistency issues across the products. Andrew was already deeply experienced as an intern and college hire in both Word and Excel user interface design, and had already proven himself to be one of the next generation leaders of OPU. Early in the product cycle, Andrew sketched out all the places across the product that lacked consistency and coherency as an original volunteer in the newly formed OPU and its prior form, the Apps Interoperability Group. And he had begun to map out plans to bring the product together and innovate in user experience. Having committed to sharing the code, we finally had one place, the buttons, menus, commands, and more for all of Office, thousands of entries in one single place. Pete Morcos emailed Pete Moore, a recent college hire, arduously managed them all by maintaining a database of every icon, command name, tooltip, menu string, status bar text, and keyboard accelerator in the product. The difficulty and attention to detail required was only matched by the long-term value for consistency, localization, user assistance, and most of all, ease of use. One of the most significant differences between Office and most other tools, even today, was the sheer breadth and simultaneous depth of features, something that would become even more apparent as web pages came to the forefront. Each application had over a thousand commands, buttons, menus, etc., with something over 2,500 unique commands in Office 96, the scope of the product would be further amplified by the platform APIs available through Visual Basic for applications, another major shared effort that enabled developers to build custom applications based on Office. This sharing was enormously difficult, taking a toll on the OPU team and frustrating the apps teams. We were a year or so into the project, and while we were clearly making progress, we were also moving much more slowly than we needed to. We had not taken the time to adapt the organization to sharing, nor did we really consider the breadth of the undertaking. The team was so frustrated that John Devon and I decided to have a meeting with Vice President Chris Peters and Senior Vice President Pete Higgins to discuss the situation. It was a combination of us asking for help and us being called to the carpet for the situation bubbling up to them from the apps teams. My own memory refers to this meeting as the one where John Devon said, people think John has lost his marbles. And thus I recall the meeting as the marbles meeting. 
I had to put together slides of some basic philosophical problems we had been dealing with across primarily OPU, Word, and Excel. There was really nothing new in the deck. I had previously sent a couple of really long emails, basically warning that things were challenging and progress was slow and perhaps slowing. Pete was hearing the other side of this from the apps leaders, how things were slow because of OPU's shared code that wasn't needed and features they didn't want, slowing things down, making the products bigger and slower while taking time away from doing features that could win customers and reviews. I am not exaggerating. The key moment in our meeting was when John Devon explained how crazy things had become. A year earlier, John was leading the Excel team through a hugely successful release. And prior to that, he'd been a key leader for the entire history of the product. He epitomized everything about desktop applications culture. Yet all these developers that idolized and looked up to him suddenly believed he'd lost his mind and somehow gone crazy, drunk off the Kool-Aid of shared code. His old team stopped believing his schedule estimates or even his architectural approaches. John had clearly lost his marbles. We were deadlocked by the word users are different, Excel users are different, and OPU is wasteful mindsets. The online version includes my slides from this marbles meeting. We vented and Pete listened. Still, it felt like there was not going to be any immediate change. I'd hoped they would do something simple like send mail to everyone saying, so listen to us, and this is the way it is. In hindsight, that was desperate and totally the wrong way to solve the issue. But our frustration levels were intolerably high across the team. Somehow, though, things did change. Pete and Chris worked quietly in the background, doing more to reinforce both the strategy and execution of Office 96. The focus on shared code, the consistent experience, and the notion that one team working together to make Office. This happened in all the right ways in small one-on-one -on -one meetings. That was the dad culture. Pete was savvy enough to know the team would not react positively to some sort of commandment or over-the-top edict about sharing. The subtle persuasion and repetition were what the team needed and got. Eventually, the apps leaders are reaching out more, and over the following weeks, we saw the climate changed. Our view was that Bill G would be quite proud of the sharing. We thought for sure the idea that breaking down the barriers between apps and improving the architecture of everything would be viewed extremely positively. The product was still impossibly difficult to run, though, and we had stable daily builds due to the sheer force of will from John and Grant and the development and test managers, but there was two years of work ahead as things were starting to feel better. Even with the bumps of the road ahead, I was feeling pretty good about it all. Every month, I gathered up the status reports from the project for an email report. Each team, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, as well as Azure, Toolbars, and all of the OPU teams, contributed a section with information on the progress, the PDL, or Product Development List, in reference to a spreadsheet of all the active projects at Microsoft. The individual apps also created PDL reports, even though our goal was a single product release. There were two important items to cover. First was the project on time. Office 96 appeared to be generally running on time at this point, so the update was benign, though unbeknownst to us, we were being particularly optimistic. The second part of this update included the process that was near and dear to the desktop apps, which was ads and cuts. Throughout the development, particularly after an eight or 10 week milestone, each team at a very granular level, the individual developer, reevaluated the list of work items, tasks taking about a day of development or so, and considered the progress made versus the progress required. The results were almost always feature cuts, removing proposed features or extra little things about the product. 
There was also learning along the way. There were ads, enhancements, new options, reworked features. Jeff Harbors had always taught me that transparency and completeness were critical to how Bill G thought. So my PDLs were works of art in those attributes. I worked super hard to bring the product to life with transparency and clarity. Upon receiving one PDL for Word, Bill G replied to let us know a few things. The online version includes this PDL and this mail from Bill G that is described below. First, we were cutting too much. Quote, the number of cuts is truly amazing to me, he asked in red text. In fact, in the effort to be honest, my PDL looked like we were gutting the product every month. That was not the case. In desktop apps, the basic approach was cutting is shipping. So in order to ship, we, we scaled the product back as we learned more. That was how the process worked, and everyone was comfortable with that, at least within apps. I felt horrible for the team and certain the email would result in people quitting and apps using it as a chance to say how OPU was a bad idea. That concern was followed by a worry that I was going to get fired. Were we on a path to a bad product? Was I leading us in the wrong direction? Was I messing up? Or perhaps this was all a communication problem. Separately, Bill chose to highlight some specific features that he felt strongly about. This inadvertently, honest, it was unintentional, allowed us, the apps teams, to say that the OPU efforts and resources were robbing the apps of features that Bill would prioritize. Ugh. The right thing to do was to show Bill some progress, but without the ceremony of a full project review. We were early in the development of Office 96, and most features were merely crawling. Most of us were not running the product on a daily basis, as it was not ready, called self-hosting, and certainly it was not ready for Bill G to use, nor was a polished demo. Nevertheless, I took it upon myself to set up some time and march over to Bill's office with my laptop, talk through the PDL, and show him some carefully curated features. It was a risk, but so was debating an email or letting the issue fester. It was a quick 30-minute drive-by, and one of many I routinely did over the years. I made clear I was not showing features specific to Word or Excel or PowerPoint. The dynamics of the data organization would have looked, not looked kindly upon that, as I had no responsibility for those features. Rather, my goal was to put Bill at ease over the investments of shared features. I showed off the toolbars, which at the time were called command bars, as they brought unification of both toolbars and menus. Escher drawing, highlighting the depth of the work we were actually doing. This was enough to put him at ease for the time being. It was a good lesson on how the verbose nature of the email status report was mostly undermining the very goal of showing off progress. The demo went so well that we separately held another demo session at the end of the milestone. In this one, we filled the room with members of each team, and everyone got to show off the work of their team. It also served as a reminder that while we were, there were plenty of shared features, a large part of the value of the release came from the domain or app-specific features across Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. We had a new saying now, which became, we're selling Office, now we're making Office, but people use the individual apps. After the meeting, I nudged Bill to send a nice summarizing mail about what he saw and served to solidify the progress we were making across the team and undo some of that earlier nonsense. And it was a good lesson that working software beats a status report. Onward.